The Reluctant Conformist. Chapter 7, Episode 2. The Pilgrim. In 1947, Arthur Wilfred returned home to recommence a normal family and business life in his homeland. His first action was to move the family from the Babelobeg prison camp hut, laughingly registered as Babelo Bungalow, to Robin's Croft, a tiny stone farm labourer's cottage nestling on the edge of Fairy Glen near the Pot and Pan waterfall on Gravel River, in the postal district of Keradu. The cottage came with enough land for a large chicken run to provide additional income, Wilf's primary occupation being that of motorcycle mechanic. At Robin's Croft, for the first time in his life, Magnus had a playmate of his own age. Andrew lived in Glen Rosa, the only house close by. Andrew was lucky, because his home nestled beneath the foliage of fairy glen trees, and from his bedroom he could listen to the tumbling waters of the nearby waterfall. When they were five years old, Magnus and Andrew were often driven to school in Andrew's father's car. Cars were few and far between in those days of post-war deprivation. However, it was necessary transport for Andrew's father to conduct his business as a dealer in rabbit skins and feathers. In Poland, before World War II, Andrew's father had been a talented taxidermist, kept busy preparing, stuffing and mounting the dead pets and hunting trophies of the Polish aristocracy and eager to impress social climbers. He arrived in Britain in the late 1930s, where he volunteered to join the RAF to fight the common enemy, the German Nazi. In the late 1950s, Andrew's family moved from Glen Rosa to open a guest house at Hague Farm, the manor house in which Captain Bly's fiancée lived prior to their wedding in 1781. One of their summer guests was a wealthy Scottish laird, who persuaded Andrew's mother to become his housekeeper, come cook, and her taxidermist husband to reinvent himself as a gamekeeper, a job in which he could use his considerable expertise with dead creatures and their skins. So the family moved to Scotland, and Magnus lost contact with Andrew. In no time, things were looking up at Robin's Croft, especially for three small children. The place was overrun with hens and bantams, and expensive eggs were back on the menu. The children's greatest pleasure was caring for the newly hatched chicks. Fertilised eggs were incubated in a heated wooden barrel, alongside which the newly hatched chicks were kept warm. The children's mother, Margaret William, contributed to the success of the enterprise by collecting eggs from the chicken run and hedge groves, where some independently-minded chickens preferred to nest and lay, and delivering the eggs on her pushbike to the village grocer for sale. Conditions in the new house were primitive at best. Downstairs lighting was by pressurised paraffin mantle lamps, with candlelight upstairs. Cooking and heating water was on a primer stove and the coal fire. There was no bathroom, but there was a cold-running tap to the washing-up sink. An enamel bowl on the kitchen table was used for personal washing, and at weekends the grubby children took turns to luxuriate in a galvanised iron tin bath in front of the coal fire. The lavatory for daytime use was an outdoor thunderbox in a lean-to 
which housed an enamel bucket under a wooden bench seat with a large hole cut through. The small children were unduly anxious about falling through the bench seat hole into the guano below. Chamber pots were used during the night. Even though the cottage was little more than a rustic hovel, Margaret Lillian and Arthur Wilfred were eager to brighten up the whitewashed stone walls of their new home. Post-war austerity left little cash for necessities, let alone the luxury of interior decoration. Huddled around the kitchen fire on a bitterly cold December night, when cheerily charged with pre-Christmas rich ruby port wine, the young couple hit upon a decoration idea that was within their means. They cleared the kitchen and covered the knobbly concrete floor with old newspaper, kept for lighting the fire then set about their task in a merry atmosphere of rich ruby-charged abandonment. Taking turns, they hurled an old tennis ball, pre-soaked in pea-green distemper, at the whitewashed walls. On impact, the luminous paint spattered everywhere, creating unique patterns, the like of which may have made the American abstract expressionist drip painter Jackson Pollock raise an eyebrow in admiration. Unbeknownst to Wilfred and Margaret, they had created a new style of kinetic performance art, which forever imprinted itself on the receptive mind of their three-year-old son, Magnus, and which later would be acknowledged in selective circles as Manx Nouveau Realism. During the early 1960s, the avant-garde French artist Yves Klein thought he was well ahead of the game with a publicity-seeking happening in which he invited three naked girls to act as living paintbrushes, to smear pigment daubed on their breasts, bellies, thighs and bottoms on large vertical surfaces. Little did Klein know, but over a decade earlier, at Robin's Croft, in the postal district of Keradu, a young Manx couple had already set a high bar for performance art which, in some minds, the Frenchman's postmodernist minge art failed to better. Even though most things were in short supply, and wartime food rationing would remain for many more years, the Macaulay family's livelihood had taken a turn for the better. They'd all survived the war, had a roof over their heads that didn't leak, didn't go hungry, and were warm indoors during winter. They benefited from two incomes, meagre though they were, and the children, like the chickens, were free-range happy with acres of countryside and fairy glen to play in. The blue touch paper of their parents' commercial ambitions had been reignited, albeit with a slow burn. It wasn't long, however, before those glowing embers of aspiration were stifled, then doused in an instant. On the evening of Friday the 5th of March, 1948, Magnus was at home in Robin's Croft with his father. At three and a half years old, he was too young to go to the cinema with his mother, brother and sister. The mile-long rural walk from Robinscroft to Onkins Avenue Cinema was nothing new. His five-year-old brother and seven-year-old sister walked it every day when they didn't ride on their father's motorbike. James Arthur Ratcliffe sat up front between his father's outstretched arms to the handlebars with his legs dangling on each side of the petrol tank. Susan Maureen sat behind as a pillion passenger clinging to her father's waist. Mostly they walked to school along quiet country roads. Sometimes it was foggy, and they strode through the swirling mist with ghostly trees and bushes on either side. 
On such days, Susan Mooring counted the footsteps between the blasts of the foghorn on Douglas Head, three miles away. Each time, the sum was fifty-nine steps, never sixty. Susan, a pupil in Miss Pedder's class, was awarded a wall-chart gold star for her time's table and sums. Wrapped up against the winter chill, the three cinema-goers trooped through the evening gloaming, expecting to return two hours later chatting merrily about the film in the frosty pitch-black night, with only the unnerving undergrowth crunch of the foraging nocturnal wildlife for company. Much to their delight, they met Auntie Winnie, their mother's sister, Winifred Agnes, alighting from the bus in Onken Village. Winnie! exclaimed their mother. What a surprise! Oh, Margaret! cried Winnie, clearly upset and carrying a suitcase. I've had enough of Jack Prince. I've left him, and I'm on my way to you. There were no pictures and ice cream that night, just the uphill drag back to Robin's Croft, lugging the suitcase and the crock of Winnie's sad memories along with them. During her marriage to the former policeman, P.C. Jack Prince, Winnie endured the loss of five babies, either miscarriages or stillborn, reputedly as a result of complications brought on by her husband denying her proper medical attention during her first pregnancy. Saturday morning broke bright and frosty brittle, but Robin's Croft was warm and alive with the excited shriek of three children bouncing on the bed and wrestling with their favourite aunt, Winnie. If you don't stop jumping on the bed, you'll break the springs, their father called out laughingly, sitting astride his dilapidated pre-war motorbike, waiting in the chilly winter air to be push-started. He paddled forward with his feet, whilst his wife, Margaret Lillian, trotted behind pushing. He let in the clutch, the engine fired, and he chugged off to work and into the never-never, leaving behind a young wife rubbing her hands together for warmth. Wilf's cousin Morwood lived at Sunnyside, a cottage a few hundred yards up the road from Robin's Croft. On that morning, Morwood's wife, Ruth, was in bed recovering from childbirth two weeks earlier, and was being visited by her sister, Jean. Seeing you, Jean, always cheers me up, said Ruth. Jean stood by her sister's bedroom window, looking out at the frigid, skeletal-treed morning, wondering what to say. Finding comforting words for the loss of a newborn baby is no easy task, particularly for a tragedy that was entirely avoidable. Ruth had opted to use a private clinic for her second confinement, to avoid the fate that had befallen Barbara, their firstborn. Barbara was spastic, having suffered oxygen starvation at birth. Ruth's second child, Pauline, was perfect. A beautiful healthy baby, but she lived for only ten days. Through neglect or oversight, alone in a cot, the baby choked to death on her mother's regurgitated milk. The silent wintry stillness at Sunnyside Cottage, on Little Mill Road, was broken by the easy throb of a single-cylinder motorbike accelerating along the empty country road. "'There goes Wilf off to work,' Jean said, glad of the distraction, until a moment later, "'Oh, he's fallen off the bike. Is he all right?' asked Ruth anxiously. Has he got up? No, said Jean. He's still lying on the road. Jean and Morwood, who was downstairs, rushed along the road to help their cousin, but it was no use. As was usual at the time, 
Wilf hadn't been wearing his horsehair crash helmet and had fractured his skull. It's true, the weakest link in a chain usually parts first. Whether or not that was the case with their father's motorbike chain will remain a mystery. What is known, however, is that the chain parted, but instead of streaming onto the road, as is generally the case with a broken chain, it snatched and wrapped around the back wheel drive sprocket, flipping the motorcycle and rider into the air. Arthur Wilf died at four that afternoon, leaving behind a widow, three children, and their favourite aunt to get by in Robin's Croft, a dark and damp 18th-century farm worker's cottage, with no sanitation, gas, or electricity, and most pressingly, no income apart from that gleaned selling hen's eggs. During two busy weeks that March, Morwood was crushed by the emotional burden of attending coronial inquests and funerals, one of each for his newborn baby daughter Pauline, and again for his cousin Arthur Wilfred. Philosophers and mathematicians may argue that pure rationality is irrefutable and cannot be challenged. Some anthropologists may, however, disagree. For instance, in the desert kingdom of Saudi Arabia, if a taxi is involved in an accident, the passenger is usually blamed, not the driver. The upturned reasoning behind this seemingly anarchical verdict is that, had the passenger not hired the taxi, the vehicle would have been elsewhere, and therefore the accident couldn't have occurred. By relating this rickety rationale to what-if history, it's not unreasonable to imagine that had the young Adolf Hitler been encouraged to pursue his early dream of becoming an artist with more determination and become as successful as Kurt Schwitter's, his whole life may have been different. Had this transpired, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Hitler's formidable energy may have been channeled into artistic pursuits rather than scheming to establish and then lead the Third Reich, thus perhaps avoiding World War II. This speculation raises the question, had Hitler pursued an alternative career? Would Magnus's father have been killed riding to work on that chilly March morning in 1948? The answer must surely be no, for he'd have been elsewhere involved in other issues. From the time of being drafted into the war effort in 1939, his life would have been utterly different, and, in all probability, Susan Mooring, James Arthur Radcliffe, and Magnus Henry would never have been conceived. Hitler's abandoned artistic ambitions cannot be held responsible for the children's existence, nor used as an excuse for anything else that befell them in life. In Magnus's case, the path chosen in the spring of 2014 was trekking through the Basque countryside of France and Spain, and it was in the famous red chili pepper province of that landscape where he was destined to experience the second of the memorable incidents of the walk.